0: Okay, so I was a transfer student to the University of Michigan, right? And it gets cold in Michigan quick. And people will not look up at you or they might get snow blindness. And it's just too cold for folk to meet all kinds of new people and everything. And especially they don't have time for some corny transfer student. So I knew it was gonna be a cold and lonely year, but I met a woman, Kelly, and she was a transfer student too. And Kelly said, no, 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 no. This is gonna be a great year. We just gotta to sit together. And she pointed to a table at the bar, Good Time Charlie's, and she said, This is our table. And just like she said, other transfer students started hanging out with us, and all was right with the world.
1: R-E-A Ground Zero, every movie starring you.
0: And there was a core with Kelly and Robert and Priya, and we used this merry band of rejects as a springboard to the rest of the university. I love those guys, I loved them. Then we graduated, and everybody went to the four corners of the world, to Asia, Africa, Iowa, whatever, and I meant to stay in touch, but I messed up and I didn't stay in touch. I should have stayed in touch. And then, seven years later, I went back to Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I'm walking down University Avenue just randomly and I look over and I see our old table at Good Time Charlie's and I start chuckling to myself you know, thinking about the old crew and wondering how did I let them get away and I hear this Glenn! Glenn! and I turn around and it's Kelly from back in the day and then we hear this squealing from across the street and look over and it's Priya And we're like, no way. What are you doing here? What the hell? We're so happy and hugging and jumping up and down. And Kelly calls Robert's cell phone. And her face turns pale on the phone when she's talking. And Kelly says, you're not going to believe this. Robert just flew into town. He's going to be right here in a couple minutes. (laughs) No way. All of us just happened to return to the same street corner at the same time seven years later. No way. It's like... An invisible puppet master said, Here are some important people. Reconnect with them. Well, this week from PRX and NPR, Snap Judgment proudly presents The Hand of Fate. Amazing stories about the power of the invisible hand. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. We're going to kick off today's episode with the story of fate providing someone exactly what they were afraid to even ask for. Wanda Rodriguez told us her story.
2: My name is Wanda Rodriguez. I'm 42 years old. I grew up in the Bronx. Basically, my mother raised three girls all on her own. My dad and mom had me, and shortly after they had me, they went their separate ways. There was really nothing that I could remember as far as any moments with my father, because I was an infant. My mom, growing up, um, didn't really talk about my dad much. I'd never had pictures of him, so I, there was nothing that I could really go by. You know, I always wondered, you know, where, where is my dad? I wonder if someday I might have passed him and not even realized it. I tell my kids that when I hear you say daddy, it's like music to my ears, because I never knew what it was like to say my dad. You know, you'd always hear people talking about my dad, my dad, and and I always miss that. I always wanted to be a nurse ever since I was five years old. Been a nurse approximately 24 years now at Calvary Hospital. I'm an assistant head nurse there. Calvary's my second home. I always felt growing up that there was a tremendous amount of emptiness. Providing this nurturing side to the patients that I take care of, like it, it sort of made up for that emptiness, if, if you could understand, because I felt like he didn't take care of us, but I'm. this is my calling, I'm going to take care of patients. It was August 25th, 2010. Approximately like 10 minutes to 7, I was expecting an admission. Patient arrives to the unit. He looked okay. He didn't look like he was in any distress. So the EMS guys sent them into his room. The doctor at some point was questioning the patient's chart. And when he did this, he mentioned the patient's name. And I heard I overheard him mention Victor Peraza. When I heard this name, I just froze. I stopped and I, and I was like, oh my God, Victor Peraza? Paraza is my maiden name. Victor is my father's name. Is there any way this could be my dad? At that point I was just so nervous. So I said, you know, the best thing to do is go into the room and actually look at this patient. The one thing I know is that my mom said I, I resembled him with the exception of his uh, green eyes. I went into the room and he turned around and looked at me and I, and I noticed his green eyes. Just, I saw my face. I couldn't believe it, like I, my knees were like shaking. So I said, hi, introduced myself. I said, welcome to Calvary Hospital. I said, I'm your nurse. So I asked him if he had any children. He said, yes. So I said to him, really, what are your children's names? He was very quick to say, well, I have an older daughter named Gina and I have a younger daughter named Wanda. At the minute he said my sister's name, I, I knew already. I was like, "Cause this is just too coincidental. I remember grabbing my face and just running out of the room and just crying. I ran to the nurse's station and the doctor happened to notice me crying, he said, what's wrong? And I was like, that patient, that man in there, that man, that man's my dad. I didn't have a relationship with my father for 41 years. Talking to the doctor and and also glancing at his chart. I picked up. I noticed that there was documentation that he didn't have much longer. My father had two to three weeks to live. I got myself together and went into the room and just looked right at him and said to him, "Hi, I'm Wanda. I'm your daughter." And he and he just looked at me and he, and he said, "I know you're my daughter," he says. I said to him, where have you been all this time? Right out of his mouth he goes, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry for being absent in your life all these years. He goes, I'm to blame. Please forgive me. Right away, without a thought, I said stop. Listen, I forgive you. You're here. Let's just enjoy the short time that we have together. I reached over and and held his hand and just gave him the biggest hug. I meet him for the first time. Two to three weeks he has to live. I'm going to turn him away. You know, yes, I really feel that my father probably could have done a better job as far as hanging around. But the last thing on my mind was to bring this up to my father. In his last dying days, criticize him, judge him, ridicule him, whatever. It was not the right thing to do to anyone that has days to live. That night... When I got home, I told my daughter about it, and the one thing that she mentioned was, oh my God, mommy, now you this met your dad. She said, now you can say daddy. Is- I brought my kids um the very next day, and they got to meet my dad, and his face lit up. I did a lot of catching up, you know, regarding all his likes and dislikes. Getting to know my dad for who he was. What do we have in common? Oh my God, look, he does that, I do that too. I would go to work early before my shift and spend hours with him. I would always bring him his favorite uh, Spanish foods. Whenever I would praise him or say great things about him, anything that I would do for him, he would always frown, look down, and he always mentioned how he just couldn't understand why I was so good to him. I, I don't deserve this. And I said to him, and there isn't anything I wouldn't do for you. Three weeks became seven months. (laughs) everyone says because of me they said my dad lived that long because of me the likelihood of me meeting my dad after 41 years on his deathbed that's like one in a million I believe that this happened because it was something that was destined to happen it was a gift certainly a spiritual gift just realizing that this was the way it was meant to happen it certainly provided me with closure in my life and peace of mind. When my father passed, there were no regrets. I know that I gave him the best of care that I could have given him. And, and, and there was no wrongdoing. And that's how he died, with peace in his life, not feeling guilty about anything.
0: Thank you, Wanda Rodriguez, for sharing your story with Snap. Wanda still works at Calvary Hospital is in the process of writing a book about her experience. She's looking for a publisher. The piece was produced by Stephanie Fu and Pat and CD Miller. Fate has always worked in mysterious ways for our next guest and Snapper's... This is his first time on the show. It will not be his last. You are about to find out why. James Judd. It's
3: 1990, and I've recently graduated from college with a degree in English, which I soon find out is about as useful for finding a job as having a degree in waving your hands in the air. So I go to the college career day fair, and I take the first job by the first company that will hire me. I've been hired by AT&T, the biggest telephone company in the world. I'm going to be an account executive in the major markets group of the downtown Los Angeles branch. Yeah, I don't know what that means either. On my first day of work, I'm given a top-to-bottom tour of this giant skyscraper by a man from Personnel who has a cold who is very busy, who does not want to be doing this, and who keeps calling me Gary. Come on, Gary, follow me. Up and down we go, until finally the elevator doors open up onto a floor that is just a sea of cubicles. Cubicles as far as the eye can see, window to window, a million cubicles, all filled with people and paper and ringing telephones. It's very exciting. I've never even seen a cubicle before, so the thought of working in one seems, you know, like a very attractive idea. The personnel man kind of stumbles upon an empty cubicle, and he says, Oh, uh, here, Gary, this is where you're going to sit. So, you know what? I'm going to leave you here now. But don't worry, I'm sure your new supervisor will be by any moment. And then he or she will give you even more information about the company. (laughs) As well as explain to you the finer points of your new job. So, I guess there's nothing left for me to say except, once again, Gary, congratulations, and welcome to AT&T. Goodbye. And he leaves. So I sit, and I wait. But by the end of the day, no supervisor, no anybody comes by to tell me anything. By the end of the first week, I begin to think, they've forgotten me. By the end of the second week, I get my first paycheck, and I think, I have so found the perfect job for me. Clearly, somebody in the universe was looking out for me. The stars had aligned. This was the best job in the world. By the end of the first month, I have my whole routine down. I've got a blue pinstripe suit, I've got shiny black shoes, I've got a different colored tie for every day of the week, I've got a briefcase full of blank paper, and I've decorated my cubicle to make it look like I am very, very busy all the time. I've got little sticky notes all over my computer terminal, I've got two coffee mugs, because I'm just too gosh darn busy to keep running back and forth between the coffee break room, and I've got a big stack of manila folders filled with blank paper. And I shuffle them, I shuffle them, I shuffle them, and I move them to one side. In the afternoon, I move them back, I move them back, I move them back. Occasionally, somebody will come by my cubicle and say, Hey, new guy, or hey, Gary, you are working hard or you hardly working? And I always say, I'm hardly working. And they just laugh. <laughs> and they keep on going. Occasionally, my telephone will ring, but it's always because somebody's gotten my number by mistake. They never wait to find out that I'm not the person they want to talk to because they're already screaming at me by the time I pick up the phone. Then I put them on hold, and I press transfer, star, transfer, and boom, they're gone. I don't know where those calls go, but they don't come back to me, and that's all I care about. One day, a memo arrives on everyone's desk that says that every single at and employee in Southern California, not just LA, but all of Southern California, which is huge, is required to report the following Friday to the LA Arena for a big company meeting with all the big executives who are going to fly in, and they're going to rally us a third quarter glory. Well, the appointed day arrives, and I get down to the L.A. Arena in plenty of time to pretend to help set up. And I see this place is huge, and it's packed full of people. Every seat is filled with AT&T employees, and all the big executives march out on stage, and music is playing, and people are on their feet, and they're cheering because these are executives. And the biggest big shot is marching back and forth across the stage saying AT&T is the greatest company in the world, blah, 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 yackety, yackety, bark, bark, bark. But it's not just about us. It's also about you. We're here today to get to know a little bit about you. So what I need is a volunteer to come up here from this great big crowd, stand on this stage, look into this microphone, and tell the crowd who you are, where you work, and what you do. To help keep this great company of ours growing well do i have a volunteer well how about you and he points right to me so up on stage i go and i stand in the spotlight i look into the microphone and i say to the crowd hi my name is gary and my cubicle is in the downtown los angeles branch yeah go downtown la and i don't do anything No, 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 no. Uh, listen, I've been here a year. I've already gotten two raises. I still don't know what my job is. <laughs> Everybody laughed, like, he's kidding, right? And then I guess somebody figured out that I wasn't. Good news, bad news. Bad news first. When I get back to my cubicle, The very same personnel man who gave me the tour on my first day of work is standing there to let me know that I've been fired, effective immediately. Good news, the pink slip comes made out to Gary, while automatic check deposits to James continued for another year. I was part of the can't-do generation, and that's what makes America great.
0: James Judd. James Judd. James Judd is the force behind the popular one-man show, Seven Sins. James Judd's story was produced by Jamie DeWolf with sound design by Pat Macidi Miller. Now, Snap Judgment Legal has asked me to please note that AT&T is a fine company with excellent employment practices and the event chronicled in James Judd's story happened a long time ago and was due to the hand of fate duly noted snap judgment the hand of fate will return in just a moment Welcome back to Snap Judgment: The Hand of Fate. This week, we're exploring real-life situations where it seems as if your circumstances are not entirely of your own making. Now, fate. Fate can be the cruelest mistress of all, and for this next piece, we want listeners to know that this story is emotionally charged. Bad things can happen to good people. Kyle Bowen shares a story of family A story of love, and a story about what it really means to be a father.
4: (sighs) I said, make her live. And that makes me a selfish man. Because there is nothing more selfish than wishing for someone to live with pain and disability because you want something. I am a selfish man because I didn't want my daughter to die. So, I said, make her live, and they did. And because of my selfish wish, she knew pain, and I have to live with that decision for the rest of my life. I didn't know what else to do. I did know that I had a daughter, a beautiful three-day-old little girl, and the doctors, the many, 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 many doctors told me and my wife, our beautiful three-day-old little girl, would never be a five-day-old little girl. She was going to die very soon. Maybe before they finished telling us that she was going to die. But certainly before another day was up. She had a four-day lifespan. And she wasn't going to get any more... Unless, unless they tried a radical, experimental procedure that might stop the bleeding inside of her head but would certainly destroy a major portion of her brain and so they wanted to know. Should they proceed or should we let her die? My wife looked at me and said, you decide. I was suddenly the undisputed head of the household, paterfamilias, so any blame... Any responsibility is mine. The choice was mine and mine alone. A choice between pain and death. Certain death or uncertain life with massive brain damage. And I was selfish. I wanted a daughter. Daddy's little girl. I wanted that more than anything in the world. So I said, make her live. And they did. And because of my selfish wish, she knew pain, and seizures, and surgeries, and she never walked, she never talked, she never even held her own head up, but she did know love, and joy, and to those that loved her, she gave great joy, and she made me a better man. It is, I think, safe to say that the world is a slightly better place because she was in it, and who among us can say that about ourselves? Most of the time, I am certain I made the right decision, but there are moments every day when I think of the pain that she had to live with, pain that existed because of my selfish wish when I said make her live and she did.
0: Kyle Bowen would like to dedicate this piece in memoriam of Daedra Artemis Bowen. Kyle's a writer, a storyteller, and a poet who's performed on three continents and currently lives and writes in Chico, California. I just got a chance to speak to a stamp judgment favorite, Joel ben Izzy, And I asked him, in a sense, do you have a time when your world was touched by the hand of fate?" Well, Joel, he answered me with a story.
5: There are times in life where you just know something is going to happen. It's just preordained. It's, It's meant to be. And that's how I felt before my first trip to Israel. I had wanted to have mystical experiences for a long time. And I would looked to the Jewish religion being Jewish. And when we would go to the Jewish festival there in Los Angeles, the teenage boys would line up outside the mobile, and they would put on tefillin. Tefillin is this little leather box with straps and you put it on and you say a prayer and you're supposed to feel something. And I did it and I felt nothing. I thought Israel will be different. I got this job leading 120 high school kids around Israel looking for mystical experiences. And I knew that if there was one place an experience was going to happen, it would be at the wall. The Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, the wall around the Temple Mountain, the sacred place. That is where people stand, they pray, they pour their hearts out. I knew it was going to be a miracle. And so I went there, found my own spot, and waited for that feeling. And nothing. There was a wall, there were notes, but it wasn't that magical whatever it was. And so the next day we took those kids to another place which was under the city. That was called Hezekiah's Tunnel. This place winding under the city of Jerusalem to a little Arabic village. As soon as we got out of the heat, into that tunnel, it was cool. And the water came up to our waists. The deal is this. They made the tunnel by chipping from one side of the city to the other. They chipped from both sides. The only thing to guide them was the sound of the chiseling on the other side. So the tunnel snakes this way and that. And you can actually feel the chisel marks on the wall. And you can feel the point right where they met and change direction. And I thought, this place is so great. And this place would be much, much, much better without 120 screaming high school kids. So the next day was Friday. I waited until the guard left and I climbed the fence all by myself. And I walked in that tunnel. And sure enough, it was so cool. I had brought with me a little tiny candle because I had been told that the water there actually makes a circle. And if you put a candle on a boat, it will float all the way around and back somehow. I put that little candle on that boat and it floated slowly ahead of me. It turned around one corner And the glow slowly faded away. And I turned around another corner, and then absolute blackness. I held my hand up in front of my face. I saw nothing. So Friday afternoon, under the city of Jerusalem, actually under the Western Wall, what's there to do but pray? And really, there's only one prayer to say. That would be the Shema, the most sacred prayer of the Jewish people. And so very quietly, I sang. The echoes were so rich and so full I could accompany myself as I sang and I began to sing over and over again to sing in rounds It was beautiful. I stopped singing and listened as they slowly faded out. And I've never heard a fade like this. Over 15 seconds, they faded to absolute silence. And I stood there in the darkness, listening to that peaceful, beautiful sound. And then, about Ten seconds later, the echo started up again. I actually felt my lips to see if it was me singing. I wasn't. This prayer, the most sacred prayer of the Jewish people was echoing there all by itself under the Western Wall. And as I stood there, I saw a glow in front of me and realized that my candle had come back, that it floated all the way around. I picked it up, and I I carried it, still accompanied by the sounds and the echo that went on and on and on. And there ahead of me was the light at the end of the tunnel, and I thought, that's it. I blew my candle out. I had my miracle. And as I came out, there was a group of Arab boys, and they were all sort of standing around staring at me. And I looked, and I said, Salam alaikum. And they looked at me, and they looked at each other, and then all at once they said, "Shema Yisrael, ah, Eloheinu ha-echad. and it was then I realized just what had happened. And they laughed, and we sat there hanging out, chatting in a mix of English, Hebrew, and Arabic. They had some playing cards, and I played cards in a bit. And they had some binta and some hummus, and I ate that. And I brought out some figs that I had. But throughout it all, I was thinking, "Hmm." But I've often thought back to that Friday afternoon. As I read papers, as I watch TV, as I hear about battles in the Middle East, time has a way of changing things. An American Jew and a bunch of Arab kids from a neighborhood on the edge of the West Bank playing cards, sharing a meal together. And I think, you know what? I got my miracle.
0: Joel Ben Izzy performs around the country and works as a storytelling consultant. Yeah, a storytelling consultant. That is a job. For more info, check out his website, storypage.com. The piece was produced by Stephanie Fu. Now, we're looking into situations today on Snap Judgment, situations when it seems like a part of your life is being directed by another. Yvonne, Yvonne's in the process. She's in the process now of having that happen to her.
6: Picture this. It's a beautiful summer day in 2001. Yvonne and her friends
7: are visiting the Big Apple, and there's so much to see. So I was coming from a small town to New York, I was 18. It was it was very exciting. We were just taking a walk through Washington Square Park. We saw you know a, some kind of photo shoot going on, and we thought it was some kind of fashion shoot. We were watching, and it was very glamorous to us. Anyway, so one of the people at the photo shoot comes up to me and asks if I'll pose for a picture. They told me that they're with Getty Images, and that they're shooting stock photography. And um, they handed me a fifty dollar bill, and then they said, "Your face can be used for anything." I was just so flattered. I just thought, wow, I'm a model in New York City or something. I just thought it was some sort of big break. I immediately said yes. They had all the, the beautiful lights, the light filters, the fill on your face, you know, it was very professional. So, um, and I had my picture taken. They gave me a Polaroid. I look very much like myself. Hair is kind of blowing to the side, white shirt. Yeah, just have a big smile because I was very I was very happy. Let's go. I did not think I would ever see it again. But two years later,
6: she got an email. Yvonne's photo had been spotted halfway across the world.
7: It was a crazy coincidence that the girl who saw it was this girl I had a big falling out with. She was studying abroad in Barcelona, and they came out of her apartment one day and there at the bus stop was me skydiving attached to another man and um, we were skydiving for Nokia. It's a terrible Photoshop job. It's so bad. And then the hair. My hair is still pointing down, even though (laughs) ostensibly I'm flying through the air. And of all the people in the world (laughs) who find it, she goes across the world. And every day she leaves her apartment and I'm in the bus stop.
6: You'd think that a pretty young skydiver would have no
7: problem catching a date. But the second version of Yvonne didn't have too much luck and love. I came home, I was checking my Hotmail account, and there on the side on a Match.com banner ad, I realized it was me. I think my name was Janet, and I was 28 years old and from New Jersey.
8: Perfect match.
7: Needless to say, the real Yvonne stayed off of dating sites. Even though I was single, I was happy not to be that in particular incarnation of myself.
6: Yvonne didn't relate much to the first couple versions of herself. But one day, she saw the picture in a context
7: that she actually liked. My sister's best friend, who was in the park with us that day, found the picture in a box of yogi tea. It was um, raspberry women's tea. And she opened up the insert with all the sort of nutritional information. And there I was. Below my, my face it said, like, namaste or something. My mom loves this, by the way. She got a whole bunch of the Yogi Tea boxes. And she called Yogi Tea. but she managed to get somebody on the phone who had been involved in the photo who told her, oh, we just thought she looked so healthy and fresh. (laughs) Somebody out there saw a whole character in this picture. And that character was someone that Yvonne wanted to be. The last time I saw it was an ad for Quicken, and it was me saying, I'm going to get a handle on my spending. And at the time when I saw that I was living in New York and my whole life was up in the air, I just thought, wow, I I don't have finances to get a hold of, (laughs) even at the moment. The irony there was kind of amazing. I thought, oh, it's something, you know, maybe a version of myself or a part of myself to aspire to. Yvonne has found herself in other strange places. Banks in Russia, and I think that picture has traveled more than me. So, you know, where maybe I am in Japan right now, maybe I am in Argentina, or places that I'd like to go. And so
6: Yvonne's glad that she put her alter egos into the hands of the universe.
7: I'm okay surrendering the photo to wherever it ends up because the randomness of it and the lack of control that I have over it, that's what I love about it. When I love seeing it because it's always like, what's it going to be next? Because it will have many fates, right? I'll get to have a million different personas and I'm always somewhere out there doing something else.
0: <laughs> Yvonne Puig is a writer who published this story on the website thisrecording.com. Ivana's gotten offers from screenwriters to turn this situation into a movie so it could be that the photo was her big break after all. It was produced by Stephanie Fu and Mark Ristage. Stay tuned. Snap Judgment The Hand of Fate continues. Back to snap judgment from prx and npr this is the hand of fate episode for this next story snap traveled across the globe to denmark where we found charlotte a woman who defied all the odds now i don't speak danish so we've got a little help but first let's get charlotte
9: my name is charlotte, and i
1: live in denmark
0: thank you charlotte now to help us out today We have a translator from a studio in Denmark. Are you there?
1: Can you hear me? Yes.
0: (laughs) Our story starts out when Charlotte makes a difficult choice to divorce her husband Michael. Even though he is the father of her two children, Charlotte knew that Michael was not the right man for her.
1: I was a bit sad because uh, it was a big decision to make on behalf of our two boys. After the divorce, I began to go out with my friends a bit. Um, On the local pub in Albeck, I met Tommy and he asked me whether he could send me a text so that he could send me jokes and I gave him my, my number and he texted me on the Sunday he sent me a joke. When it was Monday, he came by for a cup of coffee. That was when I fell for him. He was like caring and gentle and interested in me and my sons and we started going out. The day before New Year's Eve, I met up with Michael because we had to arrange some things around the boys. And I fell in with Michael. We had a fight and we ended up in bed, which I I quickly regret. And then um, New Year's Day, I was invited to Tommy's place and we had dinner and I also ended up with him. I didn't think of contraception because Michael and I, we had gotten help to uh, conceive our first two children. So I wasn't likely to get pregnant, I thought. I had a notion that I was pregnant. Three months into the pregnancy, I actually took the test. It was positive and I immediately went to my doctor. He was puzzled because my stomach was too big. So he sent me to the hospital to make a scan. And this doctor, she, she had a really hard time finding the heartbeat. She was puzzled by heartbeats everywhere on my stomach. And they sort of grabbed my feet and in order to call me and said, well, lady, you're expecting twins. And I thought, oh, no, Oh no. Well, many thoughts went through my head. Um, It was a hard time because it wasn't quite the ideal situation for me. I was very certain that I wanted to keep the child because I wanted to stand up for what I'd done. Michael was the first one to tell. He was hoping that he was the father. He was hoping that the twins would bring us back together. Tommy had been, for years, been dreaming about having children himself. So now that he actually maybe had the opportunity, he was hoping so much that he was the father. So it was six stressful months for me because I was in between the men. And, and at that time, the three of us weren't the best of friends, particularly not uh, Tommy and Michael. Michael was there picking up one of our sons to go to the dentist. And then um, the water went and he took me to the hospital. And actually I was in no state where, where I was able to contact Tommy and he didn't contact Tommy while the birth went on. So he was the one who was there. Lucas came out first and then the Marcus came out. The boys were both small and they were a bit uh, premature, but they came out well. And we decided to take the test. The test results came by letter. I was with Tommy at our place in Olbek and we opened the envelope and it says it's 99.9% sure that the boys have different fathers. The likeliness is completely unrealistic. I think it's about one in 30,000 pair of twins. Actually, I have a bigger chance of winning in the lottery. And we sort of laughed and felt relieved. And Tommy called Michael instantly, you know, did you get the results? They were quite happy they had one each. And they talked it over and they decided that they might as well cooperate around this. And actually, they, they've become friends and even better friends than Tommy and I at times, I feel. Tommy's got a big heart and he loves me. And he's, he's very good at showing that. And because he is that way, I think it worked out the way it has. Marcus knows that Michael is his dad, and Lucas knows that Tommy is his dad. But to both of them, it's dad Michael and dad Tommy. And both the men show affection to both of the boys and thinking of both of the boys as their own. In in some sense, I feel that this is fate. We're celebrating Christmas and New Year's and birthdays together, all of us. So, yeah, we are one big, happy family.
0: Thanks so much to Charlotte for sharing her story with The Snap. And thank you to Marianne with Binslev for translating for us. And Marianne was also the original journalist who broke this story. She wrote a piece for The Guardian UK. We're going to have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. The story was produced by Stephanie Fu and Renzo Gorio. Fate takes many guises, sneaks up on you in many forms, many, many forms. Consider what happens when you want a family more than anything else, but just can't make it happen. Please note that this story does contain some graphic imagery. Carrie Goldberg suffered from a common dilemma.
8: I always knew that I wanted children, but I was definitely focused on career first. I kept dating and dating and dating and trying, and somehow none of my relationships worked out. Finally, I hit age 39, which was the deadline that I had set for myself a long time earlier, that if I weren't married, then I would become a single mother and have a child on my own. And I never thought that it would actually get there, but all of a sudden, there it was.
0: So Carrie wanted a baby, ASAP.
8: There's that feeling when you want a baby and haven't had one of just longing for it, you know, that sort of empty feeling in your arms.
0: Carrie decided to cut out the middleman. In fact, Carrie decided to cut out the man altogether.
8: So I eventually settled on the idea of donor sperm, so I started sperm shopping. I ended up choosing this very tall man with SAT scores better than mine. He was donor 8282. The vial of
0: 8282. The tall, intelligent sperm, it arrived at Carrie's clinic, and there it sat, waiting for her.
8: I felt like, okay, there it is. It's in the freezer. I wouldn't say that I was happy. I was just kind of like, that's settled. That's there. There's my ace in the hole. So I'd say there was kind of some relief to it.
0: But as soon as the vial arrived, things started to change for Carrie, almost magically.
8: Just as those vials from Donor 8282 were arriving, I went on my first date with a man named Sprax. His real name's Steven, but Sprax is the nickname that he goes by.
0: She met the man of her dreams, while that sperm, well, that sperm just sat on deep freeze.
8: It was just sitting quietly in the freezer. Sprax today is my very beloved husband. <laughs> Which is just amazing to me because the backstory was so... Harrowing.
0: <laughs> Carrie and Sprax now have two beautiful children of their own, and on their way to living happily ever after, Carrie was approached by a friend, Beth, another woman nearing 40 years of age.
8: And so one rainy, rainy Boston night, she stopped over and I offered her the sperm if she wanted it because I certainly didn't need
10: it anymore.
0: So the sperm in vial 8282 made the journey over to Beth.
10: It went by cryogenic truck from her fertility clinic to the one that I was using, and I always had this image of some white van exuding dry ice smoke as it was driving across the Charles River from one clinic to another.
0: Beth had recently been through a very tough divorce, which clued her into one thing.
10: It was interesting because sort of divorce catapulted me into the real realization that I wanted to have children, and I think... It really became a thing that I realized that I did want.
0: And right away, the sperm in 8282 began to work their charm.
10: Once I got those vials of sperm, it changed things dramatically for me because it took a tremendous pressure off. That sperm was there. The opportunity presented itself that even if I went out and got a turkey baster, I could have tried it the next day.
0: But there was something a little beyond the empowerment, something more
10: magic. That is a question people ask us all the time. Do you really feel like there was something, that it was a magic vial? Because what had happened to Carrie
0: then began to happen to Beth.
10: Shortly after I received the vials from Carrie, I met Phil. It was um, a surprise, let's put it that way. Phil is my now husband. Phil is the person who replaced the vials of sperm in many ways. In many, many ways. <laughs> He's more than a vial. Um He is the father of my child. I have one. I have one.
0: Right away, Carrie and Beth both realize what is going on.
8: There was a kind of a holy moment. You know, and it was, it kind of, it unfolded over time. I think for me, the really amazing moment was when We, Beth and I, sort of mutually passed the sperm on to Pam. Oh, well, you know, let's see if it still has the charm. I'm Pamela Ferdinand. I always knew that I wanted children. I just
9: didn't necessarily take action to make it happen in a timely manner. Beth generously offered me 8282, and I said yes.
0: So the little guys from 8282 are trucked over to Pam's clinic, and she hopes for the best.
9: I met Mark around the same time. It was probably a matter of weeks. I had started a fellowship, and he was sitting in front of me in an astronomy class. And he looked incredibly kind, and I thought to myself, that's the kind of man I want to end up with. And I did. <laughs> Mark is now going to be my husband next year. So he's my the father of two of my children.
0: And that is the story of the magic sperm, vial number 8282.
9: We've joked that it's the lucky sperm or the magic sperm. When I think about donor 8282,
8: I feel lucky. (laughs) When I think about donor 8282, I feel deep gratitude. I feel like without knowing it, he changed the course of my life.
10: When I think of Donor 8282, I feel kind of amused now also because who knew what that donor was going to actually do for the three of us, even though none of us ended up using it.
0: Now, for more on the story of the magic vials, Check out the book, written by Carrie, Beth, and Pam. It's called Three Wishes. We'll have a link on our site, snapjudgment.org. The story was produced by Anna Sussman. You have reached the end of Snap Judgment's Hand of Fate episode, but this was no accident. Fate demands you join Snap Nation. Full episodes, movies, pictures, share your own story, all of it, at snapjudgment.org. Facebook. Be my Facebook friend, Snap Judgment. And if you like Twitter, our Twitter handle is SnapJudgmentORG. Snap was produced by myself and those magical maestros of magnificence. Receive the blessings of he who sees himself exactly as he would like others to see him. Think about it. The Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Stephanie, the infidel foo. Anna, I need a miracle. Looking for a miracle sussman. Rita... Revealed Knowledge Daniels He sees Danish people Everywhere Pat Masidi Miller Will Urbina doesn't see people Grenzel Goriel sees animals Jamie Wolf eats animals While Lindsay Lee Keel Dances by the light of the moon Now, did you ever sit down For a romantic dinner with your special someone And have the waiter bother you every 90 seconds Disrupting your flow Don't shout Don't leave a bad tip. That's just the Corporation for Public Broadcasting trying to take care of your each and every need. Many thanks, the CPB. PRX, the public radio exchange, putting the public in public media one public at a time. PRX.org. And well, you know this is not the news. This ain't the news. In fact, you could go to a carnival and find the fortune teller. You could ask her to foresee your fate, and she could tell you great things are in store if only you follow your mother's instruction and do exactly what mama says. You could do it, and one day, happen upon your mother's closet and see the same fortune-telling outfit from that day at the carnival. You could do all that, yes! And still, not be as far away from the news as this is, but this is N.P.R.